Hello there and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. Today is Sunday, so we release our flagship episode, our big interview every Sunday. And here, wherever you're listening to this episode, you're getting the short version, the abridged cut to hear the full interview and all our interviews across 400 episodes in our archive. Why not come over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad, support this show and its creation in the future and get access to absolutely everything, including episodes of Irishman in America that can only be heard over there on Patreon and full cuts of our running podcast with Sonia Sullivan every Monday. There's even a gift tier over there at the moment that I'm offering a 15% discount on in the lead up to Christmas. If you'd like to gift an annual membership of Irishman Abroad to someone in your life who you know already he loves the show head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad now to do that well Daryl McCormick is our guest today delighted to have Daryl on a long time listener to the show who's now kicking arse in his own right and will appear on screen in Pixie a brand new feature film opposite Olivia Cook and Ben Hardy due for release this December he is currently shooting the highly anticipated Amazon TV series Wheel of Time but you'll know him from things like Peaky Blinders How to Fake a War A Very English Scandal Vikings uh, just to name a few this man's a massive Massive talent and has appeared in the West End in the Lieutenant of Inishmore opposite another friend of the show, Aidan Turner. And what a sound fella this is. This is one fun chat to have about how he got to where he is and his time studying at DIT, Conservatory of Music and Drama. He is a wonderful talent and no doubt heading on to big, big things. And the next big thing is, of course, Pixie. So seek that out. Uh, Olivia Cook, as I said, Ben Hardy, Colin Meaney's in it. Alec Baldwin's even in there. It's a full on caper. And if you're in for that, if you're up for that kind of crack, you'll love this movie. Daryl McCormick can be found on all social media. Give him a follow if you enjoy the episode and come on over, as I said, to patreon.com to hear the full unabridged cut. We go a little bit deeper as we get further into it. As you know, as we just start to relax into the chat, the best bits in the second half an hour. So head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear that. Our chosen charity partner, as always, on Irishman Abroad is jigsaw.ie, an amazing Irish charity doing wonderful things for all young people in Ireland who need help with their mental health skills the skills they'll need to survive in life not just a pandemic that's what I always say because we all remember how difficult it was to be a young person Maybe you're listening to this now, looking for some inspiration from Daryl McCormick, and you're a young actor who's struggling with the mental side of that game. Everyone needs help at some point. There's no problem in reaching out, but Jigsaw can't provide that kind of service and that kind of shoulder to lean on if we don't support them. So if you have a couple of extra quid this week, pop over to jigsaw.ie and throw it in to the tip jar there, jigsaw.ie forward slash uh, now they're an amazing charity I'm delighted to be associated with them and I'm delighted that we're doing the Irishman running abroad challenge with them too there's more details on that to be found at patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad but uh, one final heads up about an episode we released on Friday that I'm very proud of no Marion this week so we put out a crossover episode of Irishman in America with a fella by the name of Tim Livingston who has done an eight year deep dive investigation into corruption and bribery in the NBA 
This is a stunning podcast that he's made called Whistleblower, and I had the luxury of getting to sit down with Tim. It's here in the feed if you want to hear a little sample of it. And when season two of Irishman Inside Basketball drops, you'll get to hear the rest of it. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy this episode of An Irishman Abroad with Daryl McCormack. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Daryl McCormack, it's fantastic to have you on Irish Man Abroad in these unusual circumstances promoting a movie. What's that even like? I mean, I, I, I know that for a lot of people, they regard that side of promoting a film as kind of the second half of the job that nobody tells you about. Is it any ways easier staying in the one spot and having all the press come to you? <laughs> it's it's interesting. Well, firstly, I'm delighted to be invited on to speak today. A big fan of of an Irishman abroad. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. But um, no, I think it is. It is a bit strange for me. Like, I haven't really done a lead role in a film that kind of requires press and requires kind of red carpet and things like that. But it does feel interesting. It feels kind of a bit odd, you know, all that stuff to carry on in the midst of the world that we're living in right now because. You know, I guess there's no, there's very few senses of normality at the moment. But uh, it, it definitely, it's, it's kind of nice to sit at home and, and do it. But at the same time, there is that part of celebration that you do want to kind of be involved in as well. That is kind of, feels like it's robbed of you, but no. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that a few times, like various different people that I've spoken to, even those that have won awards have just mm. had a major downer and a major mm. sense of what's it all for? I mean, we're all having that that feeling. You pour your heart and soul into this movie and it's obvious the amount that it meant to everyone involved. Everyone in this movie is giving it 100%. From Alec Baldwin right down, it's um, must be heartbreaking then to be in this kind of limbo. Yeah, in a way, you know, I mean, like, I always try to see, like, the positives of everything and, and like, to even feel like there's work coming out that I'm proud of in the midst of everything right now. I'm very happy, you know. Mm. Like, I went to the cinema the other day. I think I've seen maybe three films over COVID, you know, and I just saw the, the trailer pop up onto the screen. And even in the midst of the madness of everything that's going on, I'm still, you know, I'm still able to be proud and be like, look, like, this is obviously something I've dreamt of to, to have a film in the cinema or whatever and, and, and just to see the trailer pop up. But I think it's, yeah, it's easy to kind of fall down a, you know, 
whole of thinking of all the, the wrong things or the things that I'm missing by, you know, COVID and stuff. But I'm very much grateful as well at the same time. You know, yeah. you know our show here, right? You know this podcast. You know that for me, the worst thing I can do is ask you questions you've already been asked. <laughs> for, for the listener and for you, that's, you know, that's no crack. So I thought that maybe a, a decent question to ask about a movie such as this, where, you know, guns and violence, it takes place in Ireland, in mm. the countryside. I've always struggled with that depiction. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because there's a post-traumatic stress in all of us with regards yeah. to violence, particularly gun violence taking mm. place on our shores, that mm. maybe that will dissipate in years to come as the troubles becomes just a, a thing that kids read about. Did you have any kind of reservations that way come into this and the kind of jarring nature of comedic violence? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fascinating you say that because obviously the script when you when I read it at first, it, it is its own kind of world and it is kind of, you know, if you're if you're living in a world where gangsters are disguised as priests and they're coming to take a bag of drugs that you've accidentally stolen, you know, there's a level of kind of, I don't know, just lightness, you, a pinch of salt you take with sure, it. Sure, suspension of belief. Of disbelief, yeah, of belief. And, um, but yeah, we were shooting in Belfast and I guess side note to the actual film itself, I just spent eight weeks in Belfast and I uh, did, you know, the Black Cab tours and stuff and learned a bit more about actually what happened in Belfast, you know, amidst violence. And we were staying in the Europa, which obviously is known Mm -hmm. as I think one of the most bombed hotels in the world or something. And so, yeah, it was it was strange because there was an element to me just kind of learning more about our country's history. And obviously being in a city like Belfast, which kind of was an epicenter for uh, a lot of the violence and the troubles, um, it was just kind of fascinating. And then coming to a set and then doing a film where violence is just kind of, I wouldn't say glorified, but it's just not held, held with the same kind of level of gravitas or anything. So, but yeah, I think just it was like two separate things with regards to violence going on in my head, because obviously working on the film, it was just, it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, just, yeah, being in Belfast and it is, it is something I think we've, we've had in our country. And obviously, like you said, the the post-traumatic stress. So it was, it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, hard hard as well, because like you say, if you're taking those black cab tours and seeing the reality of it Mm. and, you know, we, we all kind of owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves on that side of things. I find it at the moment in terms of writing comedy that it's hard to then shift gears from Mm. watching Boris or Leo give you death figures and then kind of come back to silly. This is a caper. You know, this is a a full on breakneck speed, mad stuff happening at all times, rollicking giggle fest ride towards an ending that we can't predict. And, you know, that is, that's a steeper gear shift as you're going to get in terms of, uh, I mean, shooting in Belfast in the midst of it. 
did that ever cause you any trouble in, in this? I, I mean, I'd imagine that being around the cast that was in it helped. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting because obviously being in Belfast, some of that stuff, you know, violence stuff would have been lost, let's say, on Olivia and Ben because, you know, they're not uh, Irish and unless they did some, obviously, research on Irish history. So, so some of the elements of that violence and what it means to Irish people would have been a bit lost on them. But um, it is weird when you do kind of understand, I guess, the real-life repercussions of violence, and then you're trying to use it in a in your art form or you're, you're going to work and the themes of violence pop up. And, and you, as someone who maybe haven't been involved in that era or, or that time of violence, but yet at the same time, you start to understand what it meant, you know. Mm. It, is, it is a weird kind of crossroads. It's also um, hard, I'd imagine, for... Barnaby as the director of this. Barnaby Thompson is the director and it's written by Preston Thompson. What's their connection to Ireland? And like, were they at all conscious of, you know, our history and I guess our culture? Because, I mean, they're writing a movie for for Ireland mm-hmm. to take place on our shores. Yeah, I think so. I think they're Preston, who is Barnaby's son, I think they might have went on a trip around west of Ireland years ago and they were just kind of obviously blown away by the um, the landscape and the beauty of kind of Ireland and uh, they really just wanted to kind of write like a western in some shape or form that's mm. set in the west of Ireland. So they got this inspiration from going on this drive years ago and and then I think, yeah, and I think it just went from there. I think, you know, Preston... He's a young writer and he's kind of not too inhibited. And um, I think he takes a lot of kind of inspiration from the likes of Martin McDonough and Quentin Tarantino. And yeah, you kind of see the elements of that. Yeah, you could, definitely. Yeah, but it was fascinating because I guess you have two, you know, British men who are writing this story about these Irish people going on this trip. So there was an element where they just kind of, didn't have too much sensitivity around it, not in a bad way, but in a way that they could allow, I guess, they didn't allow maybe history or politics to kind of cater to how they were going to make the film, which was fun. In a way, it was liberating because it just became about enjoying the film, making it, you know, as as best we could and not being too kind of sensitive around certain areas. There's obviously moments when... You know, I always relate this to people that English people will come up to you as an Irish man in London and uh, pre-lockdown, they'd, they'd nudge you when fun times were being had and say, oh, we're having the crack now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd look at them and go, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it, what I'm kind of referring to there is their version of us mm. is so different from how we see ourselves mm. and as you know the you know the only irish man in the uh, central mm. trio mm. did you at any time have to pull and go ah i'm sorry there <laughs> preston yeah. but no irish man would ever say those words yeah yeah there were i think there were a few lines maybe in the script i think that i said to preston i was like listen, this is probably a better option. You know, Preston's around my own age. He's 27 or so. And so he was very calm about 
listening to and I think just you know growing up in Ireland and stuff it gave me kind of some sort of leeway to to influence him or or guide him in certain ways as well yeah no there there were a few things but you know as actual the script went you'd read it and you would almost think that it's just a lad from Ireland who wrote it he got he got the kind of the way young men maybe just outside of the city or you know I'm from a small town in Tipperary and just the way young men kind of banter with each other and 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 talk about you know either getting out or leaving town and and moving on to you know Dublin or London you know yeah I mean let's talk about that uh, growing up in Nina and Tipperary and you know I've heard you speak uh, probably the you're probably one of the hardest people we've ever had to research on this show. I'll be totally honest with you. You haven't done much press. You mm. do play your cards close to your chest. I don't know mm. if that's a decision, but the biggest thing I could find was uh, the story you told at the Moth. And, uh, you know, it did give a window. If people want to go and find it, it's there on YouTube. And it's a beautiful piece about encounters you had as a child, but they both, not as a child, as a young man in Ireland, they both kind of speak to being that outsider. Your your experience of, you know, rural Ireland has to be different to mine. I mean, it's just, those are just facts. Mm. How different though? How different was it growing up different in that yeah. town? Yeah. God, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was interesting. I, Oh, I'm so part Irish, part African-American. My dad's side of the family come from Baltimore, east coast uh, of the States. And so, yeah, and, and they kind of lived over there for, you know, they've always lived over there. So I would see them every few years or so and spend time with them for like weeks, weeks at a time. But um, yeah, in, in a way, Jarlath, like obviously growing up in, in, in Tipperary, it's, you know, the, it's a very, it was a very undiverse or a lack, had lack of diversity when I was growing up, at least in the 90s. And, but to a degree, I was a little bit oblivious about my difference or how, how I was being perceived differently. And I think that's just because my family are just so like strongly knit together and we're always so supportive. But obviously there were, there were times when you would be aware of your difference because others would let you know of your difference or they'd mm. say something in passing and stuff and i think you know obviously with everything that's happening in the world uh, just as being a mixed race irish man i guess i'm really excited about being involved in the, the conversation about what that means you know and for me i know it i felt looking back there were a lot of times where i felt i was lost in terms of identity because in a way, I knew I was also half black, but I never really got to see my black family on a constant basis. I never really saw a healthy uh, black role model in the flesh in front of me. And so I think when I did encounter times of racism uh, or you know narrow-mindedness or whatever you want to call it, like it does make you feel a little bit lost. And there is obviously that kind of old inherent or heartache kind of feeling when you know something that's being said is wrong but you just mm. don't have the kind of guidance from a family member you know in your presence to to speak to you about it you know so i think you can kind of come away with just like a bottling of whatever happened you know something might happen and you just 
you know it's wrong. You know you have support from your Irish family, but there's kind of no support like uh, your your you know my black family could give me, and that's that's just about educating and 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 loving that part of myself. I just I never really. Yeah, it was. It, there were definitely challenges. We will ne- never really understand that. I mean, it's very. That's not to say that we shouldn't try, right? The what you went through there is an isolating experience. Even if your dad had been around to mm. help you, there. From what I've read and from first-hand conversations I've had with people who are mixed race, there is a tremendous sense of not belonging on either side of the family. Did you have that? Yeah, I think, you know, as I moved away from home, I felt more and more pennies dropped, you know, uh, especially when I came to London and I met more, I met more mixed race Irish people. I met Mm. more black people. I met more just a diversity of people and, and they became friends of mine. So I think for me, I got more and more in touch with my blackness as I moved outside of Ireland. And yeah, it's... Is is that because, can I stop you there? Is that because that were you to explore it in Ireland, you were concerned as to how that would appear or whether people would judge you for that? Yeah, it, it is interesting because I think it's not, it's not that I, I, I just didn't know I could explore it in, in Ireland. I didn't have mm. many black friends in Ireland, didn't have many mixed race friends. And, and it just felt like it, it wasn't really that available to me, you know. And I think looking back, I also didn't give my chance, myself a chance to do that. Because I think throughout having, say, traumatic experiences growing up, you start to subconsciously avoid in any kind of social scenario or bring up the fact that you're a mixed race or or different or you might do a separate thing where you might be the first to comment on it or make a joke about it so you can feel like you take some sort of ownership over it Um, sure you beat them to the punch exactly exactly you beat them to the punch and i think in a way when i stopped doing that and i felt it was weird because i remember moving to london and like making one of those jokes like i'm the i'm the only the best black friend or something like that or something just kind of silly and, and mm. then realizing that it wasn't getting that kind of reaction or acknowledgement. And, and then I, I just kind of slowly began to ask myself, why, why am I making these, these kind of re- remarks? Um, yeah. You know, it, it was just strange and it just kind of happened over time. And then, yeah. And I, so I think moving away, uh, meeting more people, having more discussions about race, uh, and discussing with people who have had similar experiences have just kind of allowed me to have a healthier approach to it. And and over time now, as I come, like I'm very much proud to be Irish and as much as I'm very much proud to be African-American. And I think it's just uh, as I grow, I'm, I'm trying to learn to hold both of them with equal, equal, equal weight. Yeah, man. Well, uh, you know, you studied drama in maybe my favourite part of Dublin. Right oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely adore Rathmines and um, lived there for quite a long time. I usually get the conversation here about st- studying drama in London and pretending to be babies for six oh. hours. <laughs> Was that the Rathmines experience? Yeah, we had bits of that. Like, you know, we'd be dressed in black and 
they'd be rolling around and pretend to be pink flamingos or, you know, be the color blue or whatever it was, you know. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I remember just obviously deciding I wanted to go to drama school. And for me, moving up to Dublin from Tipperary and doing a course in something I loved all in one and having that experience of living outside of home as well for the first time. There were some great years and yeah, we had, we had great training there as well. And just was lucky enough to be surrounded by a group of uh, people who were just excited by training. I often uh, ask people in, this question. I often, I'm all, I, I, even outside of the podcast, I'll ask actors who are friends of mine, what, why? Like, why do they do that stuff? <laughs> like, what's that for? Uh, I, like, uh, I, I can I think kind of understand. Uh, yeah, I can kind of get it. Like, uh, in that, so, I guess you, you nearly break a seal mm. in some ways, right? That, yeah. Once you've been <laughs> the color blue, and you've allowed <laughs> to lo- you've allowed yourself to get lost mm. in it, mm. is it that you can't you can't un- you can't reclasp that little bit mm. of lockdown that we all have that prevents mm. us from uh, expressing yeah, I, ourselves in that way? I don't. I think it's like I read this a really amazing book. Uh, it's actually written by a, an acting coach, but I just think as a life book, it's quite incredible. But it's called Left Brain Turn Right, which basically talks about when I guess you're in either creating something or even maybe in a social environment uh, or left brain is the kind of um, the rational brain. And then the right brain is just the irrational and artistic and creative side. Hmm. And I think when you're doing maybe these exercises in drama school and stuff, it's about that is about trying to get out of that part of our head that's trying to control something or is somewhat conscious to how it's being perceived or you know and I think when the more you tap into that right side where it's just complete abandonment to you know either form or whatever is meant to look a certain way you know uh, or work let's say I think the more you tap into that side the more the more you might make mistakes, uh, but the more you might also stumble upon some sort of uh, either creativity or some sort of magic in the moment or whatever it is. And I think, yeah, in drama school, they, they just put you through those, those silly things enough that maybe at some point you do just let go of kind of your inhibition. Your inhibition. Sure. You, you, uh, some people would say you leave the, the Nina behind. <laughs> There's a bit of, <laughs> there's a bit of uh, Nina in me too, and uh, you know I I struggle to to shake off the uh, country town of Ireland that I grew up in, and the what's your man doing? Look at look at the fucking head on him, you know that kind of mm. you know that inner voice that yeah, that is yeah. every guy standing on a street corner going smoking the fag so through crippling. the through the claw of his hand, saying yeah, who does your man think he is? You know, you know that, <laughs> that guy <laughs> has killed so many acting and creative does, careers yeah. in the country of Ireland that there's he's nearly a dream brand, Yeah, yeah, he's a dementor. Uh, <laughs> suck it out of you, suck the life out mm. of you. So, did you have quite a bit of that to overcome going to Rathmines, or yeah, was Daryl McCormick and Nina a beautiful flamingo prior to leaving? 
<laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I think a part of me, knowing that I did kind of stand out in a way, also kind of gave me some sort of, I don't know, some sort of allowance just to to go and do whatever. And I, I think I was mm. always doing either dance or acting or, and I kind of became like in a way from doing so much of it, I just kind of became, oh, sure. Daryl always does drama or he's always involved in the, you know, the choral society or something. Yeah, sure. Like sure. You're weird anyway. <laughs> exactly. <well>. exactly. <laughs> so I, I shaped some sort of that. I was just one of the, you know, I remember weird thing when I was in school and do you know the way in Facebook, you used to have like a pictures, loads of pictures of things and you could tag some, someone in like a friend mm-hmm. of yours. And so one had a, all the Pokemons or something. And uh, underneath one of the Pokemons was uh, the drama queen. And it was like the fluffy kind of pink soft Pokemon. And uh, I was tagged as the drama queen <laughs> by a guy who used to play uh, hurling for Nina. He was a good hurler as well. So it hurt a bit more. You know, I, I played, I played hurling as well. But it is weird that those kind of those judgments or whatever they can be at the time can feel massive, you know, but in a strange way, I think if you manage to get- So there you have it. That's the shortcut. Please come on over and hear the full thing over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. My thanks to John Marr for his research, Tina and Mikey for making it all possible and Brian Connolly, as always, for his brilliant help. John Marr is doing amazing work on the show, it has to be said. His extra research on this show has really been helpful to me over the last few months. And if anybody is looking for a researcher or somebody to help them with their show, I can't recommend John Marr enough. Get in touch with me, Podcast at gmail.com and I'll push him your direction. He's a hell of a fella and he even supported me at Vicker Street last year when I did Notions 11. Oh my God, that was this year. Oh my God, what has happened? <laughs> We've so much more locked and loaded for you to enjoy for the rest of 2020. Please, please take care of yourself, stay safe and be careful. I'll talk to you soon.